church is one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. And Jesus feeds us with his word, and the Spirit takes the word and applies it and quickens it to our hearts. We're studying the book of Proverbs, and so I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles. The text upon which our teaching is based this morning is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. So let's turn our hearts and our attention. And remember, this is not just a teaching time. This is a time of worship. God, through his Spirit, is speaking to you in his word. He's revealing his heart to you. How do you respond? Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Let's pray. You invite us, Lord. You say, come all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters and drink. Come you who have absolutely nothing to give. You have nothing but your weakness, your wickedness, your doubts, your loneliness, your depression, your isolation. You have nothing to give. And you say, you will open up your barns and open up your vats and you will give us new life because you say, come by without wine, without milk, without resources, and you give. And then you give this promise that as it rains down from heaven, so as the rain waters the earth, so will you pour out your word, and your word will not return to you empty or void. It will accomplish what you have set out and ordained for it to accomplish. And so, Lord... May your will be done in our midst. May your spirit move in our midst to take your word and to apply it to our lives. Bless not only the reading, but the hearing and the applying of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are studying the book of Proverbs. Let's kind of review real quickly what we're doing, why we're doing, kind of how it all fits together. And Proverbs is in the genre of literature called wisdom literature. So let's remind ourselves, what is wisdom all about? Wisdom is not just simply, oh, I know a lot of stuff and let me share with you how much I know. Wisdom is what the Bible calls maturity, wholeness, wholeheartedness, completion. It's kind of like what Paul was speaking about in Ephesians 4 when he talked about he gave pastors and teachers and evangelists to equip the saints for works of service. He says that you may be all built up till you reach unity in the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, and you are mature, meaning complete, whole, perfect, not sinless, but whole. God intends for the church, his bride that he died for, to be kind of a show and tell, if you would, on display before the principalities and powers and angels and angelic being. He says to manifest his manifold wisdom. So in other words, he wants to say to the entire world, take a look at my people. Look at how they live. Look at their relationships. Look at how they parent. Look at how they handle money. Look at how they handle, oh, go figure, politics and things like debates and stuff, all that. I watched basketball in a movie with my wife last night, no offense. Okay, But he's, in a sense, look at how the church handles all of this and see my wisdom. In other words, it's skill in action. It obviously involves knowledge, but it's skill in action. And as we've been going through these early chapters of Proverbs, 
What I've wanted to do is kind of give a key question that goes with each one. Questions to apply and be thinking about. So like one of the questions was, who do you listen to? Whose voice has authority in your life? Is it the voice of wisdom through the word of God or the voice of folly? Maybe doing what makes sense. You ever think that your own practicality and common sense might be your biggest hindrance? Or do you have a teachable spirit? And I know we always say, oh, of course I have a teachable Me? How could I not have a teachable spirit? Or what is wisdom worth to you? Do you seek it like silver, like treasure in a field? Do you incline your heart to understanding so that the gravitational pull of your heart is following hard after Jesus Christ? You are like a runner in a race, and you are going as hard as you can. You may be pacing yourself, but you're going as hard as you can after Jesus Christ and his wisdom. And then we looked last week at what is the chief battle we faced. And the chief battle is the battle of trust. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 says, trust in the Lord wholeheartedly. We utilize the image of belly flopping upon God. Spread eagle, just boom, on the promises of God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Your chief battle is not always a battle of what's the right thing to do. Your chief battle is a heart battle of whom do you trust. That leads us to our question for this morning. The question for this morning is, what is your glory? What is your glory? What is your renown? What is it that you seek after the most? Whom will you glorify? You know how this puts together verses 5 through and 6 that we looked at last week with verses 9 through 12 is we're told to trust in the Lord with all our heart to belly flop upon God. And two of the areas that most clearly reveal whether you're trusting in the Lord or leaning on your own understanding, money and suffering. Verses 9 through 12, you want to know the practical areas? Every week I go into this and I think maybe this will be an easier sermon. Finish on Sunday, I take some time of rest, I have Monday off, love my Mondays off. Get up Tuesday morning, start thinking about the next week's sermon, I'm going, maybe the wisdom literature smacks you in the face. Because now two of the diagnostic tests to reveal, that kind of uncover and expose what you're trusting is, where your allegiances are, what you value the most, what's most important to you, your wealth and when things are difficult in your life, your wealth and discipline. These will bring out what is truly first, the priorities, the allegiances. In other words, what and who it is that you glorify. Listen to how Ray Ortland put it in his commentary. He says, God is leading us to trust him wholeheartedly in the extremes of life when we are pushed out to these two opposite edges of our lives, plenty and pain? How do we handle or trust the Lord wholeheartedly in times of plenty and in times of pain? He writes, when life is sweet, trusting God with all our hearts feels unnecessary. But when life is bitter, trusting God with all our hearts seems utterly impossible. We need wisdom for those seasons in life when we are on top and for those seasons in life when nothing is going right. God is with us in both with a wisdom that makes a positive difference. The Apostle Paul put it, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him 
who strengthens me. And isn't it amazing that that verse, that great promise, we always think about it in some limited fashion, but Paul's putting it in the context of learning to be content, learning to find joy no matter what our circumstances. The wisdom literature will push us to the edges of life, to the extremes of life. And isn't it interesting, one of the things I've said as we read Proverbs, we have to learn how to read the Proverbs, and they are not a bunch of disjointed sayings. They are about living wisely, living the faith faith and trust wholeheartedly in God in the context of Israel's story. And if you think, I don't know how many of you were paying attention to Andrew's prayer earlier, and he put it in the context of the Exodus narrative. That's the faith of Israel. The narrative that says you were in bondage, you were in slavery. You've been delivered. That was Old Testament salvation. You've been delivered from Egypt. You've passed through the Red Sea. And now where do you find? You're not in the promised land yet. You're dropped in the wilderness, living out of wholehearted trust in God, the manna that he provided for heaven. You're walking in the wilderness. And it's real interesting in the book of Deuteronomy, how Moses put in his sermon to Israel, life in the wilderness. Listen to this. He says, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments, in other words, whether you would fear him, whether he would be your chief allegiance, whether you would be a people that loves God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The wilderness is a time of testing. And two of the things that are going to bring out that testing in our lives, plenty and pain, how you handle your wealth, how you handle discipline or suffering. Are we living for God's glory? Are we functionally? I know we all know the catechism question. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Wisdom literature brings out, do you just say it? Is it knowledge or is it wisdom? Is it knowledge or does it functionally describe the direction of your life? Are you living for the purposes of God? And these two, this text shows us these two key areas. Stewardship and suffering. How's that for a non-catchy outline this morning? I wanted it so you could memorize it. Pretty simple. Stewardship and suffering. Let's take a look at verses 9 and 10. Verses 9 and 10 says, honor the Lord with your wealth. And actually, the literal translation, the ESV, this, I love the ESV, but this is one of the areas where the Hebrew actually says, and Bruce Walkie commenting on this says, it's actually honor the Lord from your wealth. And that is actually a very important distinction because I want you to think about something for a second. How wealthy are we? And not just with finances. That's one aspect and a key aspect. But are we not wealthy with opportunity, resources, time, talent, creativity, gifts, passions? The wisdom literature is honor the Lord from your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now I know what you're thinking. You're sitting here. Some of you are kind of going, oh no, a sermon on tithing. And some of you are going, maybe some of our deacons, Larry, are you thinking this? Oh, yes, a sermon on tithing. I'm going to make everybody mad. This is not a sermon on tithing. It's a sermon on stewardship. That's much bigger 
than tithing. See, again, look at the text. Verse 9 begins the counsel of the sage. Here's the sage speaking to his son, and he gives the counsel, honor the Lord from your wealth, and then he gives the incentive, the promise behind this. Your barns will be filled with plenty. Your vats will be bursting with wine. Time to call time out on this, right? Let's make sure we don't misread this. Again, how many times have I said we need to be careful in our interpretation? It's so easy to read into this a promise that, huh, if I give of my first fruits, then what's God going to do? He's going to give me abundant wealth. He's going to give me this great, you know, I follow the counsel of biblical giving. I don't give 10%. I give, you know, 32%. I don't just give here. I give across the board. And God's going to, if there's one thing I don't want to hear anymore is if you give, God will bless you. That's not the point of the text. Because the point of the text comes out of verse 9, and the Hebrew word translated honor is the Hebrew word for glory. It's the word kabod. And one commentator makes the point, he says, the root of the verb means to be heavy, to be weighty. Even as we say that a person might carry social weight, makes the point that money is a revealer. Money is an exposure. What money can do is it communicates prestige, rank, importance. So the key application question is whose prestige, whose reputation, whose importance and rank, whose glory are your resources enhancing? Does your time, your gifts, your talents, your money, your finances enhance the glory of God, or does it show how important you are? In other words, the key question is, how will we use our wealth or our resources? And that it's not meant do this and you will get this. It's meant as a diagnostic sign of what we value, what is most important to us. In other words, what is our glory? Glory is the key issue here. Listen to this. It's a fairly lengthy quote, but I think it's a great quote from PCA Pastor Randy Pope about the significance and the importance of this issue of glory. He writes this. He says, if there is one thing that all people, religious or irreligious, have in common, it is that everyone is searching for that one thing that will satisfy them permanently. It's as if every person is a puzzle with one vitally important missing piece. And the void people feel as a result of that missing piece triggers a lifelong search for that elusive something. Sometimes we describe it as happiness, meaning, significance, hope, or fulfillment. But people seldom discover it, though they look for it in a variety of life's experiences, pleasures, or relationships. In fact, some people despair of ever finding it and choose instead to not go on living. What is that missing piece? What can truly satisfy? What are people really searching for? The answer is glory. People may or may not be familiar with the word, but glory is the missing piece that will bring their search to an end. He writes, what is glory? He says, if you check a dictionary or a thesaurus for synonyms, you'll find things like renown, fame, splendor, grandeur, brilliance, magnificence. It says, in churches, when the word glory is used, it is most often used in reference to the glory of God, meaning God's awesome majesty. Or sometimes Christians will talk about giving glory to God. That is acknowledging his brilliance and his majesty, his weightiness in worship. 
But here's the key point. Pope writes, the Bible speaks of glory in a third way. He says, there is a glory that is from God. The glory that God satisfies people with by bestowing it upon them as a gift. He says, where is that glory now? Well, it's been lost by the fall. But he says, yet God has not left humanity without hope. Jesus called this hope the gospel, and it is the good news that glory can be rediscovered. In the gospel, God, through Jesus, bestows or gives as a gift his glory to us. That's why Moses is praying. Exodus 33, this radical prayer of Moses that he prays, Lord, show me your glory. Makes me wonder how often we settle for mediocrity in our spiritual lives. We don't often settle for mediocrity in our work lives or in other, but but how often will we settle for mediocrity in our prayer life or mediocrity in our life of wisdom or mediocrity in how we go about following Jesus Christ? Moses wouldn't settle for mediocrity. He said, show me your glory. And the issue when it comes to our wealth, our resources, everything God has given us, is it's a test showing us whether we use it for his or our own fame, renown, enhancement, or glory. Now, of course, there's the challenge. Of course, the issue is, so how do we grow in wanting to enhance the fame and the renown of God? And the key is you will only be gripped by glory to the degree that you are gripped by grace. You will never get beyond grace. I don't care if you've been a Christian for 40 seconds or for 40 years. You don't get beyond grace. And you will only be gripped by glory to the degree you're gripped by grace. And this is the theme throughout the Bible. Let me give you a biblical illustration. Remember the story of Zacchaeus? And I don't just like Zacchaeus because he's in my height range. (laughs) He's also a great gospel story. Okay, Zacchaeus and I might be Muggsy Bogues and Spud Webb playing basketball. Okay, but he's a great... Luke chapter 19 tells the, how the gospel of grace gripped Zacchaeus. He hears that Jesus was coming in town. You want to see evidence, not grounds, evidence, a demonstration of God working in his heart? Jesus is coming into town. He says, I've got to see this man. Something's different. Something's going on here. And he's got to go. And what does he do? He climbs. He can't see him. He climbs into a sycamore tree. And what do we learn? Jesus obviously notices him, sees him, and calls him down. And in Luke 19, here's what we read. Luke 19, 8 and 9 says, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, The half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Now why is that significant? I mean, listen to the heart of Zacchaeus here. Half of my goods, 10%. He's not listening to a sermon on tithing. Half of my goods I give to the poor. If I've defrauded them anything, I don't just make it even. I restore them fourfold. And again, why is this significant? Zacchaeus is not your modern-day Robin Hood. Okay, Zacchaeus is not take from the rich and give to the poor. You know what Zacchaeus is? See, he's a tax collector. Zacchaeus is, take from the rich, take from the middle class, take from the poor, take from everybody, and give to myself. 
the basic definition of a tax collector. I'll take from you and then I'll put it in my pocket. And so that was based, and Jesus says in verse 9 of Luke 19, he says, you're saved. Salvation has come to this house. You're a son of Abraham. You're a true child of God. You're free. You're loved. You're accepted. You're saved. And we ask, how do we know that? How does Jesus know this and how can he say this? The answer is because of Zacchaeus' attitude toward his money is utterly changed. And now let's get this right. His attitude towards his money is not, and it never will be, the grounds of his salvation, but it is the demonstration and the evidence that salvation has come to his heart and to his life. Listen to these words from Tim Keller. Dr. Keller says, he says, you see, the Gospels are always talking about money. They don't talk nearly as much about sex as they do about money. And he says, this is because one of the things the Gospels point to is how for us money tends to be for us our spiritual righteousness. If we have money, we think to ourselves, ah, we've made it. And we convince ourselves we're better than others. And if we don't have money, we think to ourselves we're inferior. We stink. We're not as good. We're not acceptable. We haven't made it. So one way superiority, one way inferiority. But he says either way, we're using money as a measuring stick a measuring rod of acceptability, a measuring rod of righteousness. And what does the proverb say? Honor the Lord from our wealth, a sign that Jesus is your measuring stick. Jesus is your standard. Jesus is your righteousness. And so what happens? Why does this become a demonstration? Why has money become a test case? Again, Dr. Keller says one of the signs that we are beginning to understand the gospel is that money has lost its hold. It's not more important. It's not less important. It's just not important. He says it's lost its grip. It's lost its power of us. We no longer use money as our spiritual righteousness, as our measuring stick of acceptability. We see it's only money now. It's not my identity. It's not my comfort. It's not my reputation. It's not my consolation. It's not how I deal with my troubles. It's not how I celebrate successes. He says when we do that, when we are seeking comfort, consolation, celebrating, whatever with that, what we're doing is we're making it our glory. We're making it our adoration. That's why this text, the wisdom of it is honor the Lord from your wealth. How much wealth, let me ask you this question, how much wealth has the Lord given us? Listen to how the Apostle Paul put it. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. How much wealth? So when the Proverbs say, From your honor the Lord, from your wealth, let's really examine how much wealth. And, and let's begin to think of even 10. This is why it's not a sermon on tithing. 10% is just a thumbnail. I think Paul put it, in view of the mercy of God, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. And that becomes your spiritual act of worship. Because how rich are we? How wealthy are we? Well, the, Paul writes, though Jesus was rich. Well, how rich was Jesus? Only unlimited pre-existence. Owns everything. It's all his. The air we're breathing right now, we've loaned from him. Yet he became poor. 
He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Let me ask you a question. How is grace leading you to make yourself voluntarily, willingly poor? How is grace leading you to impoverish yourself? See, I don't think it matters whether you give 1% or 10%. The widow's might was, what, a penny? But what did she do? She made herself poor. She impoverished herself. Some of us, yes, 1% would impoverish ourselves, and that's what you ought to give. Some of us, 10% doesn't impoverish yourself, doesn't sacrifice. And I'm not putting a... Per the issue is, are you sacrificing? Are you, listen to the gospel, how wealthy from your wealth honor the Lord is what the wisdom literature says. You know, just to illustrate it this way, think about it this way. We're moving into tax season. I don't know about you, but I got a call from my accountant that says, oh, Jeff, do you want to make an appointment to come see me? And I'm going, let's see, make an appointment with my accountant, jail, which looks like a better deal. Yeah, put me down for March 28th, you know. I, I, okay, so we have that. You may not enjoy that time, but it's a necessity, right? Where you got to pay your taxes and do that. You know, again and again, I'm not being political, but I'm using this as an illustration. I don't care who you're listening to. They're talking about the debt and the country and all this. Do you recognize that the gospel defines us as having all the riches and beyond up to infinity of the United States Treasury? How much do you value the spiritual righteousness of Jesus Christ? Does it mean anything to your heart? You will only be gripped by glory to the degree you are gripped by grace. You have all the riches of the United States Treasury, and yet how often do we live like paupers? How often do we apply the gospel like paupers and say it only touches this area of life and this area of life instead of listening to what the scriptures talk about, how the gospel is to touch every area and every dimension of life, spiritual, psychological, social, cultural, that there's no area of life that God does not intend to touch with what he calls his very power. You will not be gripped by glory until you're gripped by grace. How, how is it with stewarding your resources? Next, look with me at verse 11 and our suffering. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Shane, that ought to sound familiar to you, right? Doesn't that sound like what you read a few minutes ago? Kind of funny how there's no accidents in the scripture, isn't it? And you know what's fascinating? I just want to focus on this one aspect of this because I spent a whole, a very out of balance sermon. I'm sorry about that. But I want to give you one aspect of what it looks like in, in terms of suffering. And discipline is a form of suffering. But the key to remem remembering this is that discipline is grace. Discipline is grace. Notice he begins, my son. Again, Ray Ortland reminds us, do you hear the tenderness in these words? A wise father is counseling the son he loves. What is he saying about hard times? He's saying, first, when we suffer, it isn't God angrily taking from us. It is God lovingly reinvesting in us. Yes, it's painful. It feels like loss. It feels like abandonment, but it isn't. Again, he says, when you're suffering, here's what you must remember. Your sufferings are not evidence that he's against you. Sufferings are proof that God, your Father, cherishes you. 
In other words, suffering is the demonstration and the evidence, and specifically suffering in the form of discipline, is the assurance of salvation that you belong to him. What does the text say in Hebrew 12? It says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? And listen to this. If you are left without discipline, so if you have no discipline in your life from God, we're not talking about personal discipline here, no discipline from God. You know what it is an evidence of? That you're an illegitimate child. Rather than it being an evidence that, it's an evidence that you don't belong. You want to seek discipline. You want God to be that committed to you. You want God intercepting your self-destructive behavior. Again, listen to how Tim Keller put it. He says, fathers always discipline their children. When parents discipline a child, they allow, here's what they're doing, they are introducing a milder form of pain to enter in in order to teach the child away from behavior which will lead to far greater pain later. Discipline is allowing a milder form of pain to enter in to keep you, to protect you, to put boundaries upon you, to fence you in, to guard you. Again, See, we have no idea what we're capable of. But God does, and he disciplines us out of love. And yes, that discipline feels pain. How'd you like to be in, you know, we sit there and go, discipline is, it certainly does feel painful. Remember Jonah? Remember Jonah? What was discipline in his life? And this is God entering in a milder form of pain in order to keep him from greater pain that he could do for himself. I don't know about you, but I read Jonah and I kind of go, oh yeah, milder form of pain. I'm eaten up by a whale. I'm vomiting up whale acid. That sounds like a milder form of pain, doesn't it? And yet, what is God doing in Jonah's life? He's giving evidence that says, you are mine. My son, do you hear the words of the sage, the wisdom passing into you say, do not do not take lightly the discipline of the Lord. It's evidence you belong to him. It's evidence of like what Zephaniah the prophet said, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one, a strong one, a powerful one, able to save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Do you hear the Lord's song over you when he is training you, maturing you, wanting to make you into the greatest human being you can be. You want to know what the greatest human being you can be is? Conformity to the personality and the character inside out of Jesus Christ. That is human flourishing. That's what his discipline is doing. Do you cherish it? Do you ask for it? Do you look for it? Do you seek it? Do you long for it? Because God is treating you as a son. Do you hear the Lord's exulting over you with loud singing by his covenantal commitment, his refusal to let go of you? You will be gripped by glory only to the degree that you are gripped by grace. And friends, please hear this. You need a bigger picture of grace. Discipline is grace. Sanctification is grace. The gospel 
all of it is grace. May we make it our vision to understand grace in every one of its ramifications. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your teaching us through your word. Thank you for the word that instructs us and asks us to seek and to ask the question, who and what is my glory? Is Jesus truly my glory? And that's a question we ought to be asking ourselves every day. Our glory may be you this moment, but is it you the next moment? So, Father, I ask that we would live truly for your glory in every endeavor, in every part, in every nook and cranny of our lives. May we be gripped by grace that we may be gripped by glory. In Jesus' name, amen.